Welcome, and yes, it's good to be here again. Um, as Ben said, I've recently started as the Chief Executive at Schools Ministry Group, so that's a learning experience all of its own, starting in a new organisation and meeting new people and getting to know new things. But I really appreciate the, um, and I'll talk more a little bit about that um, a bit later on, but I don't know if you've realised this morning, but there's been quite a strong theme coming through already. So even starting with Beck's prayer earlier on about the need for standing up, and then Davinda's story of people who are um, praying at such times of need, and then um, even Neville's prayer earlier about um, Israel Folau and others. And, and I'm really aware that at this time, uh, we're, we're really under fire and under challenge as Christians in this area. And schools ministry group is certainly no exception. We, um, at the moment, are living at the mercy of the federal government. We receive significant funding from the federal government, um, which is itself a miracle, which allows us to be in schools, which is itself another miracle, as um, we're currently in 95% of primary schools in South Australia. The principals have invited us in to be a Christian pastoral care worker in their schools and about 25% of high schools as well. Now, some of you may, may know that statistic, but I just want you to think about that, that we are invited in to be a Christian witness in those environments. And that is just an astonishing situation at the moment. And it's something that may or may not continue. As we know, we're in a federal election mode, and who knows what the future might hold if things change uh, in the next few weeks. And who gets in will make a significant difference on things like the future of chaplaincy in this state and, of course, in many other areas of religious freedoms as well. And so today, actually, I wanted to share a little bit on our response to things like that. And so it's been really timely that these have come out. I remember reading recently that um, a businessman posing a question that, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? if you're ever put on trial. You know, what does it actually mean to live your Christian lifestyle in your home, in your workplace, in the school environment? And that's what I'd like to share a little bit about today. Let me begin by reading for, to you from Genesis chapter 11, the first few, chapter, first few verses there. Now, the world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people at the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So, Father God, as we reflect on this today and we share the, and open the Scriptures together, please inspire us and guide us and lead us to an understanding of your Word in Jesus' name. 
So as Ben mentioned, and one of the things that Bronnie and I have been privileged to do over many years is to visit the lands of the Bible and to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and the apostles. Sorry about that. Um, And so it's an incredible privilege to do that. There's nothing quite like singing when shepherds wash their socks by night when you're sitting in the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem, in the very same spot. Sorry, that was a bad... um, uh, you know when you have kids, you, you say things wrong so, so many times that then when you go to say them right, you get them wrong? But there's nothing quite like singing Christmas carols in the place where Christmas actually happened. That's incredible to be able to do that and to pray where for thousands of years people have come and prayed and remembered. At Easter time, you might have seen on the news pictures of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre Church or walking the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem. And whether or not those buildings are exactly the right ones or the streets are exactly the right ones, the fact that for thousands of years so many people have remembered these places is really just quite amazing to be there. When you've been there, then reading the Bible has such real live memories and you you turn the pages and you read an event and even the smells come back to you as you remember what it's like. So, but let me share with you today about one particular place that we've had the privilege of visiting. And it's a place called the Pyramid of Djoser. It's one of the oldest buildings known to exist ever, anywhere. Built in probably around 2600 BC, so it's nearly 5,000 years old. That's a long time. Now, this one's made of rock. It was probably a burial ground. You can go down the one side there. There's a, a passageway that goes in underneath and there's a hewn cavern in the middle where um, people were obviously buried. The, the, the pyramid's over 100 metres when it was built from 100 metres wide and long and reached over 60 metres high in its heyday. Now, originally, it even looked better than that. It was covered in limestone and was probably smooth and quite bright. Of course, it, didn't, it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it looks like that. It is in the middle of a desert, and so it's not always clear and easy. That was a hard day there. A lot of us had to put insurance claims on our cameras after that dust storm. But the thing I wanted to mention about Joseph's Pyramid was that was built at a time when most people still lived in caves or tents, if they were lucky. If there was a town nearby, it was single-storey dwellings. And so probably the tallest anyone had ever, the highest anyone had ever been off ground was probably climbing a tall tree. A big city would have been a thousand people. And in that environment, those people built this tower that must have seemed like it reached to the heavens. And so I know this isn't Babel, But it's quite probably what the Tower of Babel looked like. Something exactly like that. The Bible says it was bricks, not stone, but there was their building technique, just pile them upon each other. And so that is an interesting reminder that that maybe is what the Tower of Babel looked like. But why is that important? Why do I raise that today in the context of what we're talking about? Well, if we read back in the Amplified Bible from that first verse of Genesis chapter 11 there, it says, the whole earth was of one language and of one accent and mode of expression. In other words, the scripture actually makes another distinction, not just between languages, but between accents. Because not only did everybody speak the same language, they even sounded the same, they sounded alike in all things. 
And in this passage, we read that, Bible, that, that God chose to divide us by our language and our accent as well. Now, some of us have different accents. Have you noticed that? Of course we have different accents. And uh, that, the accent tells us quite a lot about a person and where they're from. I remember now, with shame, when I was 18, I had the privilege of visiting in Europe and I was spending some extended time there with a German family and we were clambering through the hills of Austria and somehow the language of accents, the topic of accents came up. And I could remember with my hand on my heart in absolute honesty telling my German friends, Australians don't speak with an accent, our language is pure, it's all the other English speakers that speak with an accent. And as a teenager, I believe that. I thought what we spoke was right. That's better like my wife tells me. Uh, um, she's right and I'm allowed to have an opinion. It was like that. I, was, um, I had this opinion that my accent was what was important and what was pure and neat. Of course, a few years later, Bronnie and I spent 1989 in America and that was the year of Mick Dundee. And the Australian accent was the hottest property you could own in America. People who come up to us in the restaurants and say, you're from Australia? Say something, I want to hear you speak. Of course, in some of those cases, they were disappointed that I didn't speak with quite enough strain in my accent. I was a bit too pronounced for that. But there was this real, they wanted to hear us speak. Because an accent tells you a lot about a person. I don't know, I'm not very good at imitating accents, so I'm not going to try today, but I know there are different accents even within this room. But when you hear an accent, you hear a bunch of things come to your mind, don't they? So when you hear an accent from South Africa, what are some of the things that comes to mind? What do you think? Springboks, all right, someone speaks, things of rubbish. What else might you think of if you hear a South African accent? Animals, yes. Hmm? Cricket again. And what about history or culture? What does it tell you about that? What do you think when you hear that? Apartheid, yes. So all sorts of images come to mind when you hear an accent. Now, I'm not talking about uh, being prejudiced against someone. I'm saying that the, the accent actually tells you something. When you hear a fancy English accent compared to a Cockney accent. Right. If you heard those two in the same room at the same time, a whole bunch of mental images would come through to you. Have you ever been overseas and had anyone come in and say, oh, I know, you, you're, you're from New Zealand? <laughs> and your ire might get up at that one. That might not not so popular. Um, right. An accent tells us a lot about a person. George Bernard Shaw once said that England and America are two countries divided by a common language, as the accent tells us about some people. So I'd like to pose a question. And so theologians, please forgive me if on this. Do you live your life with a Christian accent? What does it mean to be a Christian seven days a week? Do people recognise your Christian accent? When you open your mouth or walk into a room or serve customers or solve a problem, do you do so with a Christian accent? Now, I'm not talking about speech on this occasion. I'm not talking about Christianese, about saying, God bless you all the time. 
When I lived in Sweden as a youth, they'd taken the, um, the Jewish tradition and they used to say Fried, Fried, Bruder, or Fried, sister, every time, which is the Swedish word for peace. And so you could always pick the Pentecostals in a group because they greeted each other in a, a certain way. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not a Christian accent. I'm talking about how you live your life. Bronnie worked for a boss a while back who, she, who would always complain about the other staff to her. So what was the one absolute truth she knew in that situation? What, would, what did she absolutely know affected her when her boss always complained about other people to her? Exactly. That's exactly right, Andrew. And that was, so whatever he would say, she'd know the same thing would happen the other way around. Is that how you live your life? How do you, do you talk about people behind their back? Ephesians chapter 4, 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And in Colossians 4, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you want to answer each person. So being careful with our choice of words and the things that come out of our mouth is really important. Ben referred to my time with Life of M, which was a very challenging and interesting and exciting place to work. But before I worked there, I was on air. I used to host the Sunday night program there on air. And it was a really interesting environment to live with a microphone in front of you. And where many times when an announcer thought the microphone had been turned off, when in actual fact it wasn't. And uh, some of the giggles say you can imagine what might happen there when and, uh, it, things go wrong from time to time. But I might want the best announcers always lived as if the microphone was on all the time. And so if they did get caught out with something happening, at least they weren't going to say something wrong or inappropriate or rude. Or... But that's not a bad motto for our Christian life. Imagine that the microphone is on all the time. How do we live our Christian life? What do we say? What do we do? Do you remember where you were when important times happened? Who remembers where they were on 9-11 or when Diana died or uh, something world-impacting happened? Well, I clearly remember where I was when Elvis Presley died. Now, that may not be important to some people, I get that. Um, but I remember where I was. That weekend, I was about 14 years old. I was staying with my mate Tony at his place down in Mosley Street in Glenelg. And he and I had grown up in the church. And... That day, we decided we would swear at each other. And I clearly remember Tony and I, in his his mum's kitchen, digging up all the swear words we've ever heard and hurling them at each other with great emphasis and importance. We considered ourselves so important. We were swearing. I looked up and I saw his dad standing in the doorway. Now, I was absolutely horrified. I had never used those words before, and I made a promise to myself that day that I would never use those words again. When his dad drove me home later that day, in silence, I might add, I heard on the news that Elvis Presley had died, and that's what a, the connection with that event. 
But I made a decision that day that I would never swear again. And to the best of my knowledge, I never have. I didn't think it was right for me as a Christian to use words like that. And that moment of shame has lived with me my whole life. Um, But living with a Christian accent is more than just words. What about the way you live your life? For example, what does it mean to drive like a Christian? What do you do when that turkey cuts you off just when you are... What do you do when they want to take your lane or take your car park or cut you off in the laneway? What does it mean to drive like a Christian? Does it mean to drive like an old woman? Aren't they just as bad? I'm not talking about the act of driving, obviously, but the attitude you have on the road. When you're out with workmates in the car and something goes wrong, how do you drive? Do you drive like a Christian? Does being a Christian affect the way you treat others, even the strangers with the hats and the slow speeds in the lane next to you? For years, I've often driven a branded car. At Life of M, for example, I drove a car splattered with Life of M, and it was not uncommon to get phone calls at the office. Who I was cut off by your car this morning. Now, we had more than one, so it was never me. Um, <laughs> but that was not an uncommon thing, as people rang to complain. When I worked at Bible Society, I had a branded car, and the kids used to want me to drop them off around the corner because they didn't want to be seen getting out of the Bible car as it was known back then. So even though I've driven in lots of different places and more than 20 different countries I've had the privilege of driving in, I'm still an Adelaide driver at heart. I pay my taxes, this lane is mine and no one's sharing my lane. No, no. Um, Do we drive like a Christian? Titus 2.7 says, Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. But living with a Christian accent is more than just driving. What are you prepared to sacrifice for your faith? I do a bit of lecturing and consulting and work, and last year I was working on a contract with a secular company doing some executive training and curriculum writing and development, and we were developing a training program for a new client. That was a senior executive program. And I'd been tasked with all these things I was going to do. I was going to get paid for all my effort and it was going really well. I didn't know who the client was. And one Thursday night, just as I was about to leave the office, um, the the manager of the company let slip who the client was. And it was the Adelaide Casino. And that bothered me. There are fine people who work at the casino. I'm not trying to judge anybody else in in this statement. But for me... I didn't want to help the casino do more, bigger, better. I think they're a bit of a problem to the state. I don't like gambling and the problems that occurs. So for me, that was a problem. So Friday, the boss wasn't in, nothing I could do about it. Monday, I went up to the boss and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this project. I realise if that means you're going to have to terminate the contract, we'll rewrite it, that's fine. I can't do it. I'm not going to work for that client. And the boss looked at me and he says... Yeah, I was a bit surprised you didn't say something in the meeting. I I didn't think you'd like that. And here I was, I was being, my values were being tried and I didn't even know. Because he expected me to be a Christian, 
whatever that meant to him. But I had to be willing to give up that contract, to give up that money, to give up that opportunity, because for me, that was part of my Christian accent. It wasn't what I wanted to do. A few years ago, I had to make an executive decision that was based on moral grounds regarding an employee, not necessarily on that of um, the normal employment law. And so I went to my board of directors and said, what do you want me to go to jail for? Where will we draw the line as an organisation? What will we do It's moral, even if it's not legal? Like you're terminating someone or take, taking an action like that that doesn't fulfil the law, but is the right thing for us to do. I was interested to have that discussion because I wondered whether what they thought I should go to jail for was the same as what I thought I should go to jail for. And it was important, I thought, that we clarified that difference fairly quickly. What are you prepared to go to jail for? How important is it to you to live your Christian life? Psalm 94 says, Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will stand up for me against evildoers? What will you stand up for? But living with a Christian accent is more than just rules. Here's a picture of my mate Keith. I took this photo of him last week. He was doing some work with us. Keith and I were best mates at high school. Year eight, we had to line up in alphabetical order and he and I had to stand next to each other and we've been the best of friends ever since. We've had very different careers, very different lifestyles. But his mum never liked him all that much. And the reason is, was because when he was 18, Keith got saved. He became a Christian. Came to church with me. I got him to church because I told him the girls were pretty, but it was enough to get him in the door. He's since gone through college, he's since had a stable long-term marriage, he's raised two beautiful boys, one of whom with Down syndrome. He's lived his life as a Christian and his mum's always struggled with that. Keith's two older brothers, a bit of a rat bags. Um, sorry, don't tell Keith if you, if you see him this week. Um, yeah, they've struggled with addictions and marriage breakdowns and family traumas and other things. And yet his mum still compares Keith to the three brothers. Why aren't you more like them? Not because of his actions, but because of his accent. Because of the way he lives his life. And he has lived a truly godly life as a family man, as a, involved in his church, he's uh, gone on mission trips and done all sorts of things. And he's really chosen to live his life in a way to honour God. But his mother's really struggled with that. And, that's, and yet, to his credit, he has always loved her and honoured her and looked after her. Um, she's still alive now, his father's passed away. But it's, I'm always reminded by Keith of what it means to really live your life when those around you don't even appreciate it. But he's chosen to honour his faith. I got surprised recently when um, Bronnie organised some tradesmen to come to our door and to fix a certain problem at home. And I happened to see the, the name on a piece of paper the night before he came, and, and when I saw the name, I was shocked. I was horrified. This was just 10 years ago, and one of the guys coming was the school bully from my high school. And this guy, if he had turned up in a red suit with pitchfork and horns, I would not have been surprised. Because <laughs> that's what he was to me. He was 
evil personas, personified. Um, I never knew who did it, but once at high school, um, a, a metal rubbish bin was thrown off the top of the grandstand down towards me. Missed me by that much. I reckon it was this bloke, this guy, Andrus. I never knew it for sure. And here he was about to come to my door. So I took the day off the next day, and I'm standing there at the door waiting for the doorbell to ring, and Andrus rings the doorbell. And I didn't know what to expect. This is 30 years after school. But just, the, just his name sent shivers down my back. I opened the door and he said, hello, Michael. He'd obviously put the name connection together. He said, before I come in and talk about your job, can I just tell you something, please? And I was expecting, I don't know what I was expecting, but at school he would swear at me, he would abuse me, he would criticise me, he would... Um, never laid his finger on me, apart from the bin incident. I was never punched, I never physically offended. But this guy was the ultimate in offensive in every way. And he called me out of the house and he said, before I go in, he said, I just want to say, Andrew said to me, I had a tough time at school. I was a boarder, my parents were going through a tough time and no one really liked me very much. And I lashed out at everybody. He said, but you were the one person, Michael, who never got angry back at me and who always showed me love. And I want to thank you for that. You could have blown me over. 30 years later, God's love in my life shone through and he still remembered that. And that's what I mean by living your Christian life. What does it mean to live with a Christian accent so that even if you don't know what's happening, other people still see the love of God through you? Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, I believe all of this is the mark of a good chaplain, a good person in a Christian school, somebody who lives their life with a Christian accent. There are rules at school which say we're not allowed to do certain things, but there are rules in every workplace that say you're not allowed to do certain things. And so there might be some restrictions on what we can or can't do, but there's no restriction on the accent we live our life with. And the chaplains in schools have this wonderful opportunity to simply be Christian in a secular environment and to let the love of God shine through in all that they do and all that they say. Not just from the words they say, but with the words they say. Not just the way they drive the school bus or whatever, but by the way they do it. The way they show their Christian love to all people and to all things. So I've, you've got your brochure here, you obviously know your chaplains, your, uh, Andrew works here as well, you've got lots of connections with them. But I think you've got some good chaplains here in the mix of things. You've got the four that you're working with here. Steph at Glenunga works with the student leaders and, and is already being a mentor to the students. And I think for that to work, she needs to live a life with a Christian accent and that's what she seems to be doing. Tim at Marden College has been there now for 11 years doing a great job. 11 years, they keep wanting him back. That's amazing. Not, not a lot of people work anywhere for 11 years. And for the last 11 years, he's been living his life with a Christian accent in the schools, working in the environment, working with the bread program and 
providing pastoral support not just to the kids but also to the staff. And I think that's so important. You've got a new guy, David, has just started at Marriottville and so he's having to learn how to do all of this as he gets, uh, learns what that means in his school environment to actually live a life with a Christian accent there. And of course your very own Sheila. Now I did some extra work this week and I read some reports about Sheila which I thought I'd share with you. So these are some of the words that other people at school have said about Sheila. She is someone we trust. She is always approachable, nurturing and encouraging. She is focusing on making every child feel like a valued member of our school community. I appreciate her presence in the playground at recess and lunchtime. See, those things are not actually saying, I appreciate the the things she does, the way she keeps her desk tidy or the, the activity. They're all talking about the way she lives her life. And I think that's fantastic, that she's living her life with a Christian accent. And I think that's just the incredible opportunity we have in schools at this time to be doing, uh, to be providing this witness, because it may not continue in the long term. I mean, we, we can find other ways of funding it, even if the funding model changes, but the opportunity to be in schools is what's exciting and may not always continue. Now, there's an interesting postscript to the story of Babel, and it's found in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked. Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Now, the picture here is from what is known as the upper room today. Now, this is obviously not the upper room. For starters, it's built in a wall that was an an extension to the wall that was built by by the Turks in the 1700s. So it physically cannot be the exact spot. Also, if you look at the style of the room, it's sort of a bit like a quasi-crusader style, which means even if it wasn't built in 1700, it couldn't have been built longer than 1,000 years, even if they remodelled it on before. And it's probably not quite the right spot. So for all those reasons, it's not the upper room. But it's the place that's remembered as the upper room. And that part of the city, in the Jewish quarter there of the old city of Jerusalem, has been remembered as the site of the upper room for nearly 1,700 years. And so Christians like you and like me have been going there and praying in the upper room, in this room, in this location, for a very, very long time. And it's here that we remember that while Babel separated us, separated us, the Holy Spirit has united us yet again. And that it's almost like God has trusted us again and said that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can together achieve the impossible and change the world. Not not to build another tall tower. We can do that now easily. You've only got to look at any city skyline now to see that we can build tall towers. It's now no longer about reaching to the heavens. I think it's about reaching to the earth, reaching the people 
working around us, living our life with a Christian accent. Thank you.